Part the First, Chapter One of Dick Sands, the Boy Captain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex C. Talander. Dick Sands, the Boy Captain by Jules Verne. Translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Part the First, Chapter One The Pilgrim. On the 2nd of February, 1873, the Pilgrim, a tight little craft of 400 tons burden, lay in latitude 43 degrees 57 minutes south and longitude 165 degrees 19 minutes west. She was a schooner, the property of James W. Weldon, a wealthy Californian shipowner who had fitted her out at San Francisco, expressly for the whale fisheries in the southern seas. James Weldon was accustomed every season to send his whalers both to the Arctic regions beyond Bering Straits and to the Antarctic Ocean, below Tasmania and Cape Horn. And the Pilgrim, although one of the smallest, was one of the best-going vessels of its class. Her sailing powers were splendid, and her rigging was so adroitly adapted that with a very small crew she might venture without risk within sight of the impenetrable ice-fields of the southern hemisphere. Under skilful guidance she could dauntlessly thread her way amongst the drifting icebergs that, lessened though they were by perpetual shocks and undermined by warm currents, made their way northwards as far as the parallel of New Zealand or the Cape of Good Hope, to a latitude corresponding to which, in the northern hemisphere, they are never seen, having already melted away in the depths of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. For several years the command of the Pilgrim had been entrusted to Captain Hull, an experienced seaman and one of the most dexterous harpooners in Walden's service. The crew consisted of five sailors and an apprentice. This number, of course, was quite insufficient for the process of whale-fishing, which requires a large contingent both for manning the whale-boats and for cutting up the whales after they are captured. But Weldon, following the example of the other owners, found it more economical to embark at San Francisco only just enough men to work the ship to New Zealand, where, from the promiscuous gathering of seamen of well-nigh every nationality and of needy immigrants, the captain had no difficulty in engaging as many whalemen as he wanted for the season. This method of hiring men who could at once be discharged when their services were no longer required had proved altogether to be the most profitable and convenient. The Pilgrim had now just completed her annual voyage to the Antarctic Circle. It was not, however, with her proper quota of oil barrels full to the brim, nor yet with an ample cargo of cut and uncut whalebone, but she was thus far on her way back. The time, indeed, for a good haul was past. The repeated and vigorous attacks upon the cetaceans had made them very scarce. The whale known as the right whale, the Nord Kappa, of the northern fisheries, the sulphur boltone of the southern, was hardly ever to be seen, and latterly the whalers had had no alternative but to direct their efforts against the finback, or ubart, a gigantic mammal, encounter with which is always attended with considerable danger. So scanty this year had been the supply of whales that Captain Hull had resolved next year to push his way into far more southern latitudes, even if necessary to advance to the regions known as Clary and Edelie lands, of which the discovery, though claimed by the American navigator Wilkes, belongs by right to the illustrious Frenchman Dumont Deville, the commander of the Astrolabe and the Zélie. The season had been exceptionally unfortunate for the pilgrim. At the beginning of January, almost in the height of the southern summer, long before the ordinary time for the whaler's return, Captain Hull had been obliged to abandon his fishing quarters. His hired contingent, all men of more than doubtful character, had given signs of such insubordination as threatened to end in mutiny, and he had become aware that he must part company with them on the earliest possible opportunity. Accordingly, without delay, the bow of the pilgrim was directed to the northwest, towards New Zealand, which was sighted on the 15th of January, and on reaching Waitemata, the port of Auckland, in the Horoki Gulf, on the east coast of North Island, the whole of the gang was peremptorily discharged. The ship's crew were not more than satisfied. They were angry. 
Never before had they returned with so meagre a hull. They ought to have had at least two hundred barrels more. The captain himself experienced all the mortification of an ardent sportsman, who, for the first time in his life, brings home a half-empty bag, and there was a general spirit of animosity against the rascals, whose rebellion had so entirely marred the success of the expedition. Captain Hull did everything in his power to repair the disappointment. He made every effort to engage a fresh gang, but it was too late. Every available seaman had long since been carried off to the fisheries. Finding, therefore, that all hope of making good the deficiency in his cargo must be resigned, he was on the point of leaving Auckland, alone with his crew, when he was met by a request with which he himself felt bound to comply. It had chanced that James Weldon, on one of those journeys which were necessitated by the nature of his business, had brought with him his wife, his son Jack, a child of five years of age, and a relation of the family who was generally known by the name of Cousin Benedict. Weldon had of course intended that his family should accompany him on his return home to San Francisco, but little Jack was taken so seriously ill that his father, whose affairs demanded his immediate return, was obliged to leave him behind at Auckland with his wife and cousin Benedict. Three months had passed away. Little Jack was convalescent, and Mrs. Weldon, weary of her long separation from her husband, was anxious to get home as soon as possible. Her readiest way of reaching San Francisco was to cross to Australia, and thence to take a passage in one of the vessels of the Golden Age Company, which run between Melbourne and the Isthmus of Panama. On arriving in Panama, she would have to wait the departure of the next American steamer of the line, which maintains a regular communication between the Isthmus and California. This route, however, involved many stoppages and changes, such as are always disagreeable and inconvenient for women and children, and Mrs. Weldon was hesitating whether she should encounter the journey, when she heard that her husband's vessel, the Pilgrim, had arrived at Auckland. Hastening to Captain Hull, she begged him to take her with her little boy, Cousin Benedict, and Nan, an old negress who had been her attendant from her childhood, on board the Pilgrim, and to convey them to San Francisco direct. "'Was it not over-hazardous?' asked the captain." venture upon a voyage of between five thousand and six thousand miles in so small a sailing vessel, But Miss Weldon urged her request, and Captain Hall, confident in the sea-going qualities of his craft, and anticipating at this season nothing but fair weather on either side of the equator, gave his consent. In order to provide as far as possible for the comfort of the lady during a voyage that must occupy from forty to fifty days, the captain placed his own cabin at her entire disposal. Everything promised well for a prosperous voyage. The only hindrance that could be foreseen arose from the circumstance that the pilgrim would have to put in at Valparaiso, for the purpose of unlading. But that business once accomplished, she would continue her way along the American coast with the assistance of the land breezes, which ordinarily made the proximity of those shores such agreeable quarters for sailing. Mrs. Weldon herself had accompanied her husband in so many voyages that she was quite inured to all the makeshifts of a seafaring life, and was conscious of no misgiving in embarking upon a vessel of such small tonnage. She was a brave, high-spirited woman of about thirty years of age, in the enjoyment of excellent health, and for her the sea had no terrors. Aware that Captain Hull was an experienced man, in whom her husband had the utmost confidence, and knowing that his ship was a substantial craft, registered as one of the best of the American whalers, so far from entertaining any mistrust as to her safety, she only rejoiced in the opportuneness of the chance, which seemed to offer her a direct and unbroken route to her destination. Cousin Benedict, as a matter of course, was to accompany her. He was about fifty, but in spite of his mature age it would have been considered the height of imprudence to allow him to travel anywhere alone. Spare lanky, with a bony frame, with an ornamental cranium, and a profusion of hair, he was one of those amiable and offensive savants who, having once taken to gold spectacles, appear to have arrived at a settled standard of age, and however long they live afterwards, seem never to be older than they have ever been. 
Claiming a sort of kindredship with all the world, he was universally known, far beyond the pale of his own connections, by the name of Cousin Benedict. In the ordinary concerns of life nothing would ever have rendered him capable of shifting for himself. Of his meals he would never think until they were placed before him. He had the appearance of being utterly insensible to heat or cold. He vegetated rather than lived, and might not aptly be compared to a tree which, though healthy enough at its core, produces scant foliage and no fruit. His long arms and legs were in the way of himself and everybody else, yet no one could possibly treat him with unkindness. As M. Prudhomme would say, if only it had been endowed with capability, he would have rendered a service to any one in the world. But helplessness was his dominant characteristic. Helplessness was ingrained into his very nature. Yet this very helplessness made him an object of kind consideration rather than of contempt, and Mrs. Weldon looked upon him as a kind of elder brother to her little Jack. It must not be supposed, however, that Cousin Benedict was either idle or unoccupied. On the contrary, his whole time was devoted to one absorbing passion for natural history. Not that he had any large claim to be regarded properly as a natural historian. He had made no excursions over the whole four districts of zoology, botany, mineralogy, and geology, into which the realms of natural history are commonly divided. Indeed, he had no pretensions at all to be either a botanist, a mineralogist, or a geologist. His studies only sufficed to make him a zoologist, and that in a very limited sense. No Cuvier was he. He did not aspire to decompose animal life by analysis, and to recompose it by synthesis. His enthusiasm had not made him at all deeply versed in vertebrata, mollusca, or radiata. In fact, the vertebrata, animals, birds, reptiles, fishes, had had no place in his researches. The mollusca, from the cephalopoda to the bryosia, had had no attractions for him nor had he consumed the midnight oil in investigating the radiata, the ecmodemata, acalephae, polypi, entozoa, or infusoria. No, Cousin Benedict's interest began and ended with the articulata, and it must be owned at once that his studies were very far from embracing all the range of the six classes into which articulata are subdivided, the, the insecta, the minopoda, the arachnida, the crustacea, the kynhopoda, and the analides, and he was utterly unable in scientific language to distinguish a worm from a leech, an earwig from a sea acorn, a spider from a scorpion, a shrimp from a frog hopper, or a galley worm from a centipede. To confess the plain truth, Cousin Benedict was an amateur entomologist and nothing more. Entomology, may be asserted, is a wide science. It embraces the whole division of the articulata, but our friend was an entomologist only in the limited sense of the popular acceptation of the word. That is to say, he was an observer and collector of insects meaning by insects those articulata which have bodies consisting of a number of concentric movable rings, forming three distinct segments, each with a pair of legs, and which are scientifically designated as hexapods. To this extent was Cousin Benedict an entomologist, and when it is remembered that the class of the insecta, of which he had grown up to be the enthusiastic student, comprises no less than ten, footnote, these top ten orders are one, the orthoptera, e.g. grasshoppers and crickets, two, the neuroptera, e.g. dragonflies, three the hymenoptera, e.g. bees, wasps, and ants, four the lepidoptera, e.g. butterflies and moths, five the hemiptera, e.g. cicadas and fleas, six the coleoptera, e.g. cockchafers and glowworms, seven the diptera, e.g. gnats and flies, eight the ripipitera, e.g. the stylops, nine the parasites, e.g. the acarus, and ten the thysanura, e.g. the Lepisima and Podura. Orders, and that of these ten, the Coleoptera and Diptera alone, include 30,000 and 60,000 species respectively. It must be confessed that he had had an ample field for his most persevering exertions. 
Every available hour did he spend in the pursuit of his favorite science. Hexapods ruled his thoughts by day and his dreams by night. The number of pins that he carried, thick on the collar and sleeves of his coat, down the front of his waistcoat and onto the crown of his hat, defied computation. They were kept in readiness for the capture of specimens that might come in his way, and on his return from a ramble in the country he might be seen literally encased with a covering of insects, transfixed adroitly by scientific rule. This ruling passion of his had been the inducement that had urged him to accompany Mr. and Mrs. Walden to Miss New Zealand. It appeared to him that it was likely to be a promising district, and not having been successful in adding some rare specimens to his collection, he was anxious to get back to San Francisco and to assign them to their proper places in his extensive cabinet. Besides, it never occurred to Mrs. Walden to start without him. To leave him to shift for himself would be sheer cruelty. As a matter of course, whenever Mrs. Walden went on board the Pilgrim, Cousin Benedict would go too. Not that any emergency assistance of any kind could be expected from him. On the contrary, in the case of difficulty he would be an additional burden, but there was every reason to expect a fair passage and no cause of misgiving of any kind, so the propriety of leaving the amiable entomologist behind was never suggested. Anxious that she would be, no impediment in the way of the due departure of the pilgrim from Waitemata, Mrs. Weldon made her preparations with the utmost haste, discharged the servants which she had temporarily engaged at Auckland, and accompanied by little Jack and the old negress, and followed mechanically by Cousin Benedict, embarked on the 22nd of January on board the schooner. The amateur, however, kept his eye very scrupulously upon his own special box. Amongst his collection of insects were some very remarkable examples of new staphylins, a species of carnivorous coleoptera with eyes placed above their head. It was a kind supposed to be peculiar to New Caledonia. Another rarity which had been brought under his notice was a venomous spider, known among the Maoris as a catipo. Its bite was asserted to be very often fatal. As a spider, however, belongs to the order of Rachnida, and is not properly an insect, Benedict declined to take any interest in it. Enough for him that he had secured a novelty in his own section of research. The Staphylin Neozelandus was not only the gem of his collection, but its pecuniary value baffled ordinary estimate. He insured his box at a fabulous sum, deeming it to be worth far more than all the cargo of oil and whalebone in the pilgrim's hold. Captain Hall advanced to meet Mrs. Weldon and her party as they stepped on deck. "'It must be understood, Mrs. Weldon,' he said, courteously raising his hat, "'that you take this passage entirely on your own responsibility.' "'Certainly, Captain Hull,' she answered. "'But why do you ask?' "'Simply because I have received no orders from Mr. Weldon,' replied the captain. "'But my wish exonerates you,' said Mrs. Weldon. "'Besides,' added Captain Hull, "'I am unable to provide you with the accommodation and the comfort that you would have upon a passenger steamer.' "'You know well enough, Captain,' remonstrated the lady, "'that my husband would not hesitate for a moment to trust his wife and child on board the Pilgrim.' "'Trust, madam? No, no more that I should trust myself. I repeat that the Pilgrim cannot afford you the comfort to which you are accustomed.' Mrs. Weldon smiled. "'Oh, I am not one of your grumbling travellers. I shall have no complaints to make either of small cramped cabins or rough and meagre food.' She took her son by the hand and, passing on, begged that they might start forthwith. Orders accordingly were given, sails were trimmed, and after taking the shortest course across the gulf, the pilgrim turned ahead toward America. Three days later, strong easterly breezes compelled the schooner to tack to larboard in order to get to windward. The consequence was that by the 2nd of February the captain found himself in such a latitude that he might also be suspected of intending to round Cape Horn rather than of having a design to coast the western shores of the new continent. Still, the sea did not become rough. There was a slight delay, but on the whole, navigation was perfectly easy. End of Part the First, Chapter One. Recording by Alex Talander, Davis, California. www.alexetalander.com.